Welcome to episode number 22 of Nurses Living the Good Life. My name is Anne Conkley. I'm a certified nurse midwife and a certified life and business coach, and I'm so glad that you're here. Today, we're going to talk about a book that I've been reading that I know has been helpful to me, and I think it will be helpful to many of you as well. And it's called The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, which has been noted as one of the premier texts of feminism in the uh, 20th century. So we will spend some time today and I'll read a passage that I think is going to put in perspective maybe some of the reasons why it's either hard for you to create new change in your life or whether the fear of doing something like starting a private practice literally stops you in your tracks of doing it. So I hope that this will be supportive to you, and I think that it will be. Um, As a side note, uh, we've just returned from two and a half weeks abroad in Europe. I've put a lot of videos up on Instagram for those of you who are curious of our travels. And uh, we started off in Italy and flew into Milan and went to Lake Como for uh, five or six days and had a beautiful villa that was on Lake Como that had stunning views of the mountains and uh, the lake. Uh, And if you've ever seen pictures of Lake Como, uh, and yes, we did uh, take a boat drive by George Clooney's house. Um, But if you've ever seen pictures of Lake Como, it's somewhat of an oddity. It's a it's a gorgeous, stunning lake with uh, blue water. And uh, it's very deep and it is surrounded by by relatively high mountains. And uh, so the scenery just makes for a very picturesque and really impressive uh, landscape. But we started in Lake Como and spent a few days there. And then after that, went to Milan and stayed in Milan for a night, did a little bit of shopping and uh, and then took a high-speed train from Milan to Rome. Um, And those of you who are familiar with Europe know that train travel is a concept that we don't be put into use here in the States uh, nearly as much as they do in Europe. So we were on a beautiful high-speed train um, that went, I think, up to 250 uh, miles an hour, uh, or maybe kilometers an hour. Uh, That sounds more reasonable. And, um, you know, it's funny, too, just being in Europe and being back into using centigrade versus, or Celsius versus Fahrenheit and using the metric system rather than uh, our, our standard way of uh, inches and, you know, miles. And, um, and just a, a reminder of being back in uh, clinic and doing temperatures and doing the conversion on, you know, Celsius to Fahrenheit. And, uh, but um, uh, Rome was fantastic. We spent a couple days in Rome, really exploring the city and showing our kids Rome. My husband and I studied in Rome uh, when we were in college through Loyola University uh, Rome Center. And we went back to the Rome Center to see the tremendous amount of infrastructure that has really transformed the campus. And also to show our kids, uh, you know, where we spent six months and really had some life-changing experiences. So um, we took them around Rome. We took them to some of the more familiar places like the Roman Forum and to the Vatican Museum to see the Sistine Chapel. Um, But we took them to some smaller places that were important to us when we were there, some of the piazzas and uh, some of our favorite 
uh, restaurants, including Armando at the Pantheon. And we had a fantastic time. Um, we left Rome and headed to Greece and went specifically through Athens and then on to Santorini. Um, we spent a couple days in Ia, which is on the caldera, has the most impressive sunset views of anywhere in the world and certainly some of the most uh, gorgeous sunsets I've ever witnessed. Uh, and we had three days in a gorgeous uh, mountainside um, uh, retreat house. It was beautiful with a pool and the most majestic views of the caldera and of the uh, the islands and the area around Santorini. It was stunning. Um, we spent, after three days there, we got on a plane and uh, went on to London. Spent a couple days in London and went and visited uh, some old friends who are living in London. And, and then did a little bit more sightseeing, did the London Eye, and uh, walked around and saw Big Ben and uh, passed by 10 Downing Street. And um, interestingly, they, we were there when Boris Johnson stepped down as prime minister. He resigned. Uh, and so it was a, an exciting time, I think, just from the standpoint of being in a city when something important in that city is going on. Uh, and so, so it was exciting to see uh, the city. And I hadn't traveled there in many, many years. The last time I was in London was back in high school when I had done a two-week trip through France and England uh, with my high school. And, um, and my view of London at that time was, was very different. Uh, it was a, it was a trip. I'd never been abroad. It was my first trip abroad. And, um, for those of you who maybe have had the similar experience, I remember being, you know, 16 and, and feeling very young and, um, and it was scary to travel for me at that point. I remember actually calling my mom and saying, oh my gosh, please, I want to come home. Um, you know, we were on, I think, a trip maybe for a good two to two and a half weeks. And, um, and it was, it was scary to be away from home, you know, for me, especially I'm somewhat of a homebody. Um, and for those of you who know me, that won't surprise you. Um, so, but this time it was much different and we've traveled extensively to New York and, you know, I lived in Chicago for 10 years and I love urban living and I, I really enjoyed London and the, uh, ability to walk around and the ability to, to shop and to have really a local community. I was so impressed and surprised by how many local tailors and, uh, dress shops and women's clothing makers there are and, uh, furniture stores and how many brands there are. Um, and from a business standpoint, it felt like a thriving business community uh, that was just really tucked into several different um, uh, economic centers within London, kind of their their boroughs. So we had a fantastic time. Um, I would ever, I would always consider maybe moving to London. Uh, if we were ever considering moving abroad, it would be top on my list. Um, it's an expensive city, just like you know, many of the cities in Europe are, but London in particular uh, is more expensive in terms of their cost of living. Um, and um, and they've seen some changes in terms of inflation with Brexit. Uh, and but it was a it will hold a special place in my heart as a beautiful place to explore and uh, and a really interesting um, uh, type of uh, way of living, right? With with the crown and the presence of. Uh, being in, uh, ruled by a monarchy. I thought it was really interesting. I don't know if any of you have watched The Crown, but my husband and I watched it maybe 
a year or two ago during COVID and um, got a better perspective. And I'm sure, you know, some of that is uh, fictional for sure. And, but it gave me a better sense of, of the crown and really the impact of the crown. Um, I'm also watching Outlander right now. And for those of you who are looking for kind of a interesting series, um, Outlander has been really one for me that I've, I've quite enjoyed. Um, but it, it, it gives you a better perspective of, you know, colonization from the standpoint of uh, British rule and, and really, interestingly, how colonization really changed the landscape of not only this country, uh, but also many, many other lands and territories around the world. Uh, and so, you know, from all the studies and work that I've done on racial equity and colonization and, um, and racism, anti-racism work, it was really interesting just to see the impact of that in the present day and to visit there. So, so I really enjoyed it. So we had a fantastic time. Um, highly recommended if, uh, if you are looking for places to travel, Rome, Milan, Lake Como, Santorini, London, all on the top of my list. But I will be honest, there aren't many places I've traveled and said that place was shit. I'd never go back. I love to travel. It's really one of the um, reasons why I love the work that I do. And I love the freedom that it gives me uh, in order to do things like travel, not only internationally, but around the country and uh, to explore. So it's one of the things that I really enjoy. So so we are back. We are recovering from um, jet lag and finally feeling after about a week or so like I'm getting back on track. Uh, so um, uh, I want to dive into Feminine Mystique and to just read a small segment of this chapter because it was really profound for me. And one of the reasons that it, this is meaningful to me is because Earlier this week, on Tuesday, we had a deep dive session for Women Who Cultivate, which is, as most of you know, my group coaching program for advanced practice nurses. And we talk specifically about the patriarchy and the influence of patriarchy and why it matters in not only for women now and present day, but also in the lens of healthcare and really in the larger lens of uh, professional work and business. And so we did a deep dive into, um, again, what is patriarchy versus sexism? Why does it matter? Why is, how do we see current day patriarchy play out? Um, how do we address patriarchy, both internalized patriarchy and externalized patriarchy? And then I really gave a, a playbook of how and my solution for how to approach uh, becoming a woman who declines to internalize patriarchy and use it against herself, which many of us do. And so, um, and, and very often that shows up in ways like feeling like we're imposters and in um, shaming and blaming ourselves for when we don't do it right or when it's not perfect or, you know, when um, maybe we're you know, struggling with um, getting on the scale or, you know, standing in Target and the, you know, changing rooms and looking at bathing suits and sitting there telling ourselves that our thighs are fat and our tummies are soft and, you know, who in God's name would ever want to look at us and why would we even dare to put on a bikini, right? Like all of the chatter, and I don't know if you've had that chatter in your brain, I certainly have in mine uh, many a time. And, and it still comes up, um, if we're being honest, you know, it still comes up for me. And I know I've done a lot of work where I've changed the conversation in my brain about my body and uh, the amount of love that I have for it. Um, 
So, so we talked really through in this deep dive about, again, patriarchy and what we can do about it and why it really is problematic for those of us who identify as women and the broader lens of systems of oppression and how those who are othered and oppressed are very often dehumanized and become, um, really, um, begin to experience uh, levels of violence that those who are not oppressed do not experience. Um, so, so we had that conversation and then uh, on office hours, which I hold every week on Wednesday uh, over Zoom, we had a conversation um, in particular with, with one client who talked about how you know, she's, built, um, she's building a business and she has done work over the past few years that has really um, changed her and it has really shown how, her courage in terms of going out into the marketplace and trying something different which is very often what entrepreneurs do, right? We, we leave what is traditional and we go into a space and we, we um, change it up. We offer a new solution. We bring a new service to the marketplace. We bring a new product to the marketplace. And entrepreneurs really change the landscape of business as we know it because very often an entrepreneurial mindset is one that is a forward-thinking, out-of-the-box thinking, uh, not scared of failure, uh, type of person. And very often, for those of you who have ever tried to either do a side hustle or who have tried to start a private practice, or maybe who grew up with the experience of being watching your parents or family members who were in uh, the small business uh, industry, you know, you've seen that these are the qualities of many people who are in small business because the reality is it takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery and a lot of mind management to become the person who is able to tolerate failure, who is able to tolerate trying something new and change. Uh, most of us would admit, you know, whether it's from implementing a new EMR or it is changing up the process, maybe of your, you know, flow in the office or uh, integrating a new guideline into your practice, most of us, I think, would agree that change is not easy for humans. And we've got good behavioral uh, science data to support that, that change is never well tolerated by humans <laughs> because very often, you know, the brain kicks in in the limbic system and, and change becomes a source of fear uh, and a threat to safety. So the limbic system re- really gets fired up and becomes very loud in terms of our thinking uh, as to why we ought not change uh, and why it's very dangerous to change. And we talk about this quite a bit in women who cultivate this idea of the limbic system as the primitive brain. And, and we've talked about it here on the podcast too in a few of the earlier episodes. But when you become an entrepreneur, one's job is to get very good at managing what the limbic system would otherwise tell you is very serious and is very scary, right? So starting a business, right? Uh, Managing large sums of money, uh, being the person who uh, accepts rejection and doesn't make it mean anything about her, right? These are the things that naturally we as entrepreneurs must cultivate because if we don't, we will not last in the marketplace because there is just too much fodder that comes up. And for me and, and my clients, and I do um, you know, group coaching for advanced practice nurses and women who cultivate, and then also do one-on-one business coaching. Um, and you know, one of the things I see most often is that with my clients who by and large are identify as women and our nurses, I see that we 
in addition to having, you know, some of the normal challenges of, of developing an entrepreneurial mindset, we have some additional layers of work to do very often because for those of us who, again, have, have been socialized or conditioned because of patriarchy and because of uh, hierarchies that are built on a patriarchal approach like medicine, uh, we have some additional work to do very often that surrounds um, perfectionism, people pleasing, placating, pacifying, you know, avoiding conflict, all of these things that typically we've been conditioned as women to avoid and, and, uh, you know, to make sure that we're not doing, um, in order to be considered good and, you know, in the eyes of others. So, so after this conversation with my client and women who cultivates, uh, and after this conversation about the patriarchy, you know, I read this passage in The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, and I thought, holy shit, I have to share this because it's, it's really eye-opening, and it's a really good reminder of why it sometimes is hard to do this work, especially as those of us who are women uh, and identify as women uh, and have been uh, maybe brought up with some stories uh, about what women could do and uh, and now we're at a point of wondering why we sometimes people please and why we sometimes have to to do it right and we have that story and narrative of perfection that that really keeps us um, doing a lot of busy work and not then going for these bigger goals not going for promotions not going for negotiations not taking the leap and starting the businesses that would change the face of healthcare. So I hope this is useful to you. I uh, read it to you and then we'll have a little bit of conversation on the back end here. But this is from chapter 13. And again, this is from The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. And um, it's a, it's a, as a disclaimer to you, uh, for those of you who have read it, it's a book that is thick, it's, it's heavy, not only physically, but also in its content. It is a book that um, may result in you feel, feeling like you've been sucker punched again and again and again. Uh, it is a book that you may take and throw against the wall or desire to throw against the wall. And I always laugh in that Brene Brown talks about how she judge, judges a book and how good the book is for her and how much she needs it. And she judges it by how often she pick up, picks up the book, reads something, and then wants to chuck it. She's like, if I take that book and I want to throw it against the wall and walk away from it and I get angry and I feel triggered, she says, I know that there's something in there for me. And in The Feminine Mystique, uh, it's sucker punch after sucker punch after sucker punch. So so you've been duly warned about uh, this book and uh, the audio versions about maybe 13 or 14 hours. So it's something to really kind of sink your teeth into. And these are books I love. Uh, but uh, but I highly recommend it as a framework for the why. If you're looking for why you do some of the things that you do, uh, in addition to you know thought work, but why the conditioning and socialization exist, the feminine mystique is a great place to start. Um, so chapter 13, it is a fact documented by history, if not in the clinic or laboratory, that man has always searched for knowledge and truth, even in the face of the greatest danger. Further recent studies of psychologically healthy people have shown that this surge, this concern with great questions, is one of the defining characteristics of human health. There's something less than fully human in those who have never known a commitment to an idea, who have never risked the exploration of the unknown, who have never attempted the kind of creativity of which men and women are potentially capable. 
As Maslow puts it, capacities clamor to be used and cease their glamour only when they are well used. That is, capacities are also needs. Not only is it fun to use our capacities, but it is also necessary. The unused capacity or organ can become a disease center or atrophy, thus diminishing the person. But women in America are not encouraged or expected to use their full capacities. In the name of femininity, they are encouraged to evade human growth. Growth has not only rewards and pleasure, but also many intrinsic pains and always will have. Each step forward is a step into the unfamiliar and is thought of as possibly dangerous. It also frequently means giving up something familiar and good and satisfying. It frequently means a parting and an operation with consequences of nostalgia, loneliness, and mourning. It also often means giving up a simpler and easier and less effortful life in exchange for a more demanding, more difficult life. Growth forward is in spite of these losses and therefore requires courage, strength in the individual, as well as protection, permission, and encouragement from the environment, especially for the child. But what happens if the environment frowns on that courage and strength? Sometimes virtually forbids and seldom actually encourages that growth in the child who's a girl. What happens if human growth is considered antagonistic to femininity? to fulfillment as a woman, to sexuality. The feminine mystique implies a choice between being a woman or risking the pains of human growth. Thousands of women reduced to biological living by their environment lulled into a false sense of anonymous security in their comfortable concentration camps have made a wrong choice. The irony of their mistake and choice is this. The mystique holds out feminine fulfillment as the prize for being only a wife and a mother. But it is no accident that thousands of suburban housewives have not found that prize. This simple truth would seem to be women will never know sexual fulfillment and the peak experience of human love until they are allowed and encouraged to grow to their full strength as human beings. So she further goes on to talk about... uh, women in terms of sexuality and pleasure. And I think it's a, a, a really interesting piece. And she speaks specifically to those who are uh, high dominance uh, women and low dominance women. And, um, and she talks about, namely, research from Professor Maslow uh, from the 1930s that looked at uh, women and described the characteristic traits of women. And, and how when we get into a very binary, you know, masculine traits versus feminine traits, we then get into this sense of um, pigeonholing people into one or another. And this is very often where the conversation of toxic masculinity comes from. It's very often where we see that the characteristics of being feminine in our society, that those sometimes are also have a negative connotation to them. Uh, in terms of being a, a way to hold women back, in terms of what they can't do, right? That they're not smart, that they're not the smarter sex, that they think like women, quote unquote. I'm doing air quotes right now that you can't see, but um, but I thought this was so interesting because it was a reminder to me that in fact some of us are really brought up on this idea that you know our fulfillment ought lie in the development of children, the development of a household, and of keeping that household running. And if you know me, you know that I have 
um, I hold no grudges and no judgment against those women who decide to be the house managers and to be the women who invest themselves in their households and in their families. Uh, I think for all of us, it becomes a, a, a choice to make. And, but that there is the crux of this conversation, right? If you are conditioned or you are taught in essence that, that maybe, and you aren't given permission and you don't have the encouragement from your environment to encourage you to do hard things, to encourage you to grow, to encourage you to, um, to give up something that is familiar and good and satisfying in the efforts to create something new and furthermore if you're told that if you do that that you are then making a trade-off between being feminine or being the ideal woman and uh and mother and uh keeper of your home uh you know at what point will you start to think oh well of course my lot in life is to be i mean why i i can't i can't do growth at the expense of being a woman Right. I mean, right. And if you've been taught that being a woman is really kind of the most important thing, you know, in terms of your growth and potential, right, to become the, you know, the housewife or to become the person who is taking care of children, then I, I think it it comes back to, well, you know, if you put those on separate um, in separate bins, right, if you say, well, choice A is to be feminine and choice B is to to be a person who goes for growth. And that those are in, uh, those contrast each other and they're mutually exclusive. Of course, you will have many women who then say, well, I can't revoke my femininity, right? Like I, I couldn't do that. And so many of us, you know, get taught about, um, you know, that growth isn't necessarily something that is for us. And part of the work that we do in Nurses Living the Good Life I think, is to begin, again, to come back to making a choice. Making a choice for yourself based on what you desire, not based on what someone told you was possible for you, not based on what someone told you you should do, whether it was your parents or your boss or your chair or your partner or your children, (laughs) right? I don't know if you've ever gotten some of these socialized comments from your children about, you know, the cooking or the cleaning or the, you know, uh, that some of these very sexist comments come out, you know, even from those, you know, the young people in our households who have also been exposed just as we were at one time to popular media and to TV and to social media. And, but, but isn't it interesting that, um, that there is a very often a, barrier and an obstacle for those of us who want to do something big and different, who want to make a choice and to take what we have and to create a new solution in the world, to be so brave and bold and courageous as to think that we know exactly what our patients need. And so therefore, we're going to go out and build practices and we're going to offer it to them and we're going to do it the way that we know is best for them. Well, and I say that in, in, without being terribly um, patriarchal, to ever know what is best for another, but to know that, that we have a solution that works, that is prevention-based, that is, focuses on wellness, that is relational, that is, uh, uh, involves empathy and caring, 
And we know that that has a benefit and it involves community, right? We have a lot of research on that, right? Um, and so, but if we, if we make a choice because we are taught not to go after the private practice, not to go for the negotiation, not to go and have the conversation with your boss that could lead to promotion, not to go to, you know, have the job and then go to every other practice in the city and see what they offer and then bring it back as a negotiation tactic for your current job and to tell them you'd like a raise, right? Like if you then are taught that this isn't for you, that growth is hard and that's not for women because women just can't do that then of course we would come into this age and we would say, oh, wow, you know, healthcare really has some problems and we have a unique solution. And, but I don't know, that's not for me. I can't do that. Or I really don't know the business side. I'll never be able to run a private practice, right? Like that's just not, you know, not for me. This is also the reason that many of us will get into entrepreneurship and we are more likely then to be solopreneurs. We are, have uh, our sole proprietorships where we are the, we are a one person business. And this may be the reason that, uh, that we then don't think about hiring CEOs. We don't think about hiring uh, chief operating officers or CFOs, chief financial officers, uh, in order to run our business, we don't think about selling our businesses. We think more often about, well, if it's not me, the business shuts down. No, in fact, no, if we want to grow a business, if you want to become the person who has a revenue stream on your business and isn't the actual one doing the work, but has people doing the work for her in a way, and she runs the operation and, and keeps the ship guided in the direction of um, you know, providing that really wonderful solution in the marketplace, then, right, the next step is then to say, well, who can we bring on to the team to support that growth? But if you are the person who has been plagued with a mindset because you've been taught and conditioned that growth wasn't for you and that uh, hiring a CFO and a CEO sounds really scary and very hard, of course you may think that that's not for you. And one of the things I always talk about with clients, and they'll, you know, many of you who've worked with me, you know that I say this very often, nothing's gone wrong here. Nothing's gone wrong to have these thoughts. Your job as the, you know, as the advanced practice nurse who wants to change the world, your job is to always come back to yourself and say, wait a minute, but, but if I didn't listen to what the world told me I should do, if I didn't listen to what popular media and culture told me I should want in my life, if I didn't listen to what my grandma or my mom or my dad said, and I just went and I, and I came within and I, I went internally and asked myself, but what do I want? What could I do for healthcare? How could I be the person who changes the world? If you were to be so bold and courageous and not ask externally, but rather to go internally and say, but what do I want? What am I willing to do if it were to afford me growth, if it were to afford me the opportunity to create impact in the world? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to make a choice for myself and not base it on what other people have said, what other people think? what other people desire of me? What if I was so bold and courageous? So Betty Friedan's text gives us 
a little bit of rationale of why we may not be the ones who naturally go for uh, the, the, the growth. And right, we started this conversation by saying change is hard. Growth is hard. It's not easy. We see this in babies all the time. Their parents, new parents will say, but the baby sleeps so much. And you'll say, of course the baby sleeps so much. The rate of growth is, is extraordinary. It's so extraordinary that it is fatiguing for their bodies. They literally have sleep cycles, right? They have, they have cycles that are 40 minutes long, 20 of, which, 20 of which are sleeping. Why? Because they are going through such tremendous growth and it is exhausting to them. They literally cannot keep their eyes open most of the day. Most of the majority of the day they sleep, right? Of course, because it's growth. It's uncomfortable, right? We always talk about growing pains. I don't know if you've ever seen any in your children or maybe in your patients of the growing pains of being children who are, uh, who are growing and they're uh, experiencing growth in their bones, right? And there are some growing pains that occur. Why? Because growth is hard, and if we are willing to accept that as part of the normal human condition that occurs in babies and occurs in children, why not then for us too? Why not then for us, for those of us who want to do epic shit in this world? Why not for us too? Right? And then if you start to say, well, wait, maybe it's just because I have this story in my brain that that's not for me, then I would say, is that story serving you? And are you ready to question it? Are you willing to be courageous and to say, but what if it was? What if it was possible that I could live through growth and I could live through the challenge of being a person who took risk? And what if, what if I could do that? Am I willing to grow in order to create something that is new and brilliant and create such impact in my life? in the life of others, in my community? Am I willing? Am I willing to do that? So the Feminine Mystique is a fantastic text. I think, it's, I think it affords many of us who wonder why we do some of the things that we do. It gives us a, a narrative uh, for why that happens. Um, the other book I just read recently of note is called Women in Power uh, by Mary, I think it's Beard. It's, a, it's another great text that I think would be supportive to you. Of note, in Women Who Cultivate, I have a list of resources and texts that I recommend to clients uh, who are looking in particular for more nuanced areas of growth, whether it's in business or in anti-racism work or if it is work of, of developing a feminist mindset, um, leadership, you know, all of the things. So, so, um, so if this is something that is useful for you if you're like, you know, I, I want to be the person who goes out and creates a private practice. And I'm not afraid of growth, but I want the community of support around me. And I want somebody to help me manage my brain. And I want somebody to show me the, the detailed and nuanced approach uh, and strategy around building the business. And I would invite you to hop on a call for Nurses Living the Good Life and I would invite you over to um, have a conversation in my community where I watch advanced practice nurses uh, do scary shit all the time. And not only do we celebrate it, not only do we get excited about it, not only do we laugh at all of our brilliant failures, but we learn to become the women 
who are risk tolerant. We learn to become the women who are primed to change the world and to change healthcare. And, uh, and I think that's pretty, pretty fucking great if we're being honest. So, so I will see you guys next time. More information to sign up for a consult at www.anconkleycnm.com and, uh, reach out with questions. Take care. Bye-bye.